Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we make sure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver. Welcome to this special issue of Talking Tech Policy. It's prompted by, but not directly about, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which the Australian National University and I personally strongly condemn. Russia's actions are fundamental breaches of international law and the UN Charter on which the rules-based international order is founded. The value of this rules-based system is perhaps best measured by imagining if the current system was rewritten in Russia's image. Prior to joining ANU, I was Australia's expert at the United Nations on cyber issues. And I spent two and a half years in dark basements negotiating with the Russians and the Chinese and every country in the world about the rules of the road for countries in cyberspace. Our guests for today's pod, which I'll introduce in just a moment, are two of my fellow travellers on that negotiation roller coaster. These negotiations were consensus based. This means that every country, 193 countries, had to agree the outcome. It's really difficult to express the challenge of consensus negotiations at the United Nations. Because Western liberal democracies don't hold the balance of power. As recognised by the Economic Intelligence Unit in 2021, the percentage of people living in democracies around the world had fallen to below 50%. Authoritarian regimes are growing and gaining ground. So what motivated me and I know many of my other colleagues when negotiating at the UN is not lofty ideas of being able to make real progress, but rather the imperative of preventing backsliding and the erosion of these fundamental agreements that have been agreed decades before. It's really easy to belittle the United Nations for its lack of real-world impact. And its apparent impotence in the face of Russia's invasion is case in point. But I encourage all of you to imagine, really take a moment to imagine, what would happen if Western liberal democracies didn't engage at the UN? If we weren't there to fight quite so hard to preserve the status quo? If we cede that space... Russia, China and many other countries with strong authoritarian and autocratic leanings will happily step up and fill that vacuum. And we would quickly see the rules-based order rewritten. It is absolutely true that the UN has not been able to prevent the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it has been able to come together to condemn it. And that is significant. A UN at which the West didn't engage would not have been able to achieve this condemnation. And this condemnation isolates, rather than validates, Russia's actions, and therein lies the value of the United Nations. 
Likewise, after a sustained diplomatic effort, we were able to maintain the status quo in the cyber negotiations that I was involved in. In 2021, all 193 UN member states endorsed an agreement that had previously been negotiated by 25 countries. Expanding the number of countries at the negotiating table and not having any backsliding on the content of that agreement was a significant achievement. And we also made one small but no less significant step forward. And that was to specifically recognise the application of international humanitarian law to cyber operations during armed conflict. In practice, this means that in the conflict in Ukraine, cyber operations are subject to the same rules as any other kind of military operation. Now, of course, I know that if Russia is violating something so foundational as the principle of national sovereignty and committing gross violations of international humanitarian law by indiscriminately targeting civilians, I am not so naive to think that this agreement made with Russia eight months ago will change Russia's behaviour today. But Russia and every country in the world has now incontrovertibly agreed that international humanitarian law applies to cyber operations. And this is the yardstick against which we will measure their behaviour. So just as there has been condemnation and consequences for Russian breaches of international law using tanks and missiles, there must be condemnation and consequences for Russian breaches of international law using malware or offensive cyber tools. Many predicted, including myself, that the Russian invasion would open with extensive cyber attacks by Russia against Ukrainian critical infrastructure. There was some malicious cyber activity, but nothing on the scale that many of us had expected. I've seen some commentary that implies that this means that we've over-egged the danger or the reality of cyber operations, and I fundamentally disagree with this. We talk about this a little more in the podcast. Putin has put his nuclear arsenal, and I quote, on special combat duty regime. We would be naive to think that he has not done the same thing with his cyber forces, particularly as things become more desperate. The US and partners continue to warn of the increasing risk of cyber attacks against our critical infrastructure. During conflict, I can see that it may be easier to take out a Ukrainian infrastructure using missiles. But the same cannot be said for other potential theatres of warfare. Nor can we discount the fact that we, in Australia, Europe and the US, are asymmetrically vulnerable given the dependence of our critical infrastructure on technologies, as distinct from other countries that still use more dated technologies within their critical infrastructure with manual overrides. And of course, cyber weapons directed at critical infrastructure is not the only way that cyber tools can be used maliciously during conflict. And Russia's mis- and disinformation campaigns and the quite extraordinary efforts by the Ukrainians to counter those are case in point. For today's episode, I have two very special guests, colleagues from whom I have learned an immeasurable amount and whom I now consider to be dear friends. 
Michelle Markoff is the acting coordinator for cyber at the US State Department. Since 1998, Michelle has been the senior State Department subject matter expert overseeing and implementing foreign policy initiatives on cyber issues. Heli Timor-Klar is the Director for Digital Society Institute at the European School of Management and Technology in Berlin. Before this, she served as the Estonian Ambassador for Cyber Diplomacy, and she was also uh, previously the head of the European External Action Service, where she led the cyber diplomacy effort. And before that, she led Estonia's response to the now infamous 2007 cyber attacks, which we talk about more in the pod. Now, Heli and I are newly freed from the constraints of government, but Michelle is still a serving US official. For those reasons, due to the sensitivities of the ongoing situation, we're going to use this episode to talk about the history of engagement with Russia at the international level on cyber issues and to speak more broadly about what is at stake in Ukraine. Heli, Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. The three of us have a shared passion in many things, but we also have a shared family history of resilience in the face of Russian oppression. And I thought it might be interesting to start today by sharing a few of those stories. Michelle, would you like to go first? Certainly my family history, which is many generations old, uh, aristocratic Russian family that was forced to flee Russia during the very long Russian Revolution and escaped to Manchuria, where my father grew up before emigrating to the United States. That background, in fact, uh, has been a primary motivator for me in my involvement as a foreign affairs professional, a U.S. diplomat for 39 years, because certainly growing up during the Cold War and in the 60s and 70s, it was a constant intellectual uh, challenge to try to mediate the different parts of my background, being an American who nonetheless had a a long family history in Russia, but who also had uh, great sensibilities about China as well, since my father was both an expert in Slavic and Oriental languages and uh, Russian military strategy. And I grew up learning those types of things. The extraordinary background. I mean, it makes my upbringing in country Manjimup in remote Western Australia puts it in contrast. And Heli, how about for yourself? I am an Estonian who was born in Estonia, occupied by the Soviet Union in uh, 1971. So I saw like 20 years of Soviet occupation time and then uh, my Grown-up life has been uh, building up independent Estonia and also European and transatlantic structures, so to say. So I was heavily involved in the beginning of 90s in uh, lobbying the Baltic states to be accepted to NATO. So I have like two parts of my career. First, this uh, security, foreign and defense policy proper, which happened like first 10, 15 years, <laughs> lobbying for NATO accession and everything. Then I got married and I had kids. And later on, uh, I went back to the government and then 2007 cyber attacks happened. And well, the rest is history. I was uh, given the task of of doing cyber stuff uh, 
after 2007 attacks because somebody from uh, the policy making and strategic part of the ministry had to do this um, heavy work of uh, bringing all the different government agencies together and writing the strategy and uh, figuring out what Estonia should do after these attacks in 2007. So it was kind of falling on me because, um, I don't know, it just happened that I came back from maternity leave and the guys in the ministry were happily giving me the hardest job that he couldn't do. So this this was, I think, what happened. But maybe it's interesting also to know that uh, as all Estonian families, I have um, one part of my family deported to Siberia in 1941. Some of them came back, some of them never came back. The other part was deported in 1949. So this is very usual Estonian story. There is no, no family in Estonia who was not uh, touched by any of this. And also I married to a diaspora Estonian family. My husband grew up in Sweden, was born in Sweden, being born to a diaspora Estonian community, uh, family there. Um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law uh, were refugees uh, in 1944, after the Soviets came back to Estonia and uh, the German occupation ended and the Soviet occupation started. So the good thing maybe now is that my kids have now also Canadian passports <laughs> and Swedish passports. I shouldn't joke about this. But we never thought that this kind of horror that we now see uh, in, U- in Europe is coming back. And all these um, old memories of being in the refugee camp. Uh, so my mother-in-law is telling the stories now to my, my kids how this actually worked during the Second World War. And now we are doing the same to the Ukrainian refugees in Europe. So it's, it's kind of uh, unbelievable that history is repeating after 70 years. I think there are lots of people having conversations like that at the moment. Certainly uh, with my family, I was speaking with my grandma recently uh, and reflecting back on the fact that my granddad is also Estonian and he fought against the Russians. And so at the end of the Second World War, he found himself in a prisoner of war camp and eventually made his way to Australia where he settled and met my grandma and and they had a very happy life. But many of his family, uh, like Heli's family, were also sent to Siberia. Um, It was part of the Russian methodology of moving Estonians out and uh, bringing in the Russians to, you know, displacing the local population and and Russianizing Estonia. And actually for for over 10 years, my family thought that my granddad was dead and uh, they managed to eventually get a message back to his family by a very circuitous route because they didn't want to endanger the family who were now living under Russian occupation. And as the sort of family law goes that when my granddad's mother was told that he was still alive, that she had said that the world was not big enough to hold her joy. And, you know, that phrase has always uh, stuck with me. The other thing that has stuck with me about the family history around this is, you know, in, in quite extraordinary circumstances in 1969, my great-grandmother, so my, my granddad's mother, was able to travel to Australia and she spent three months with my granddad and my mum, who was a small child at the time, 
And, you know, this was by all accounts, just, you know, an idyllic and wonderful three months that they were able to spend together. But the family tells these stories of, of Nana still, despite being in a free country, not wanting to talk negatively about the Russian government or uh, the situation in Estonia, that if she was going to do that, she would go out into the veggie patch and kind of whisper about it. And, you know, for me, that really highlights and and particularly at the moment thinking about the situation as well just the impact of oppression and how long lasting it is i think when we look back on it my granddad was had been planning to travel uh, to estonia uh, after estonia gained independence in 1991 but unfortunately he passed away before he was able to do that but the Estonian independence also, at that point, Estonia took a very specific decision that you would focus on e-government and transparency in government and the privacy of citizens. And this, you know, really was almost a blank slate for Estonia as you were establishing yourselves after the second round of independence, as uh, you refer to it. But it really also was part of why Estonia has this reputation of being such a, a leader in e-governance. Of course, cybersecurity became very front of mind for Estonians much earlier than most because in 2017, sorry, in 2007, not 2017, there were the cyber incidents that happened uh, that Heli has referred to. And that was prompted, I understand, but Heli, correct me if I'm wrong, by the Estonian government wanting to move a Russian war hero statue from the centre of Tallinn out of Tallinn. And as a result, there was really significant DDoS attacks against Estonian infrastructure, banks, government services, etc. Uh, and Heli, you were involved in the response, as you've touched on there, just fresh back from maternity leave, you were handed this to, you know, can you please fix it? What I love about this story as well is that uh, Michelle and Heli, this was also the first point at which your careers connected. And so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how that happened uh, and where that then led to. Well, for me, I was the one in the State Department who got the call from the Defense Department because back in 2007, remember, cyber was, and until this day, is not, had not been effectively institutionalized as a foreign policy issue. Moreover, while we had all been talking about cyber Pearl Harbors and state-on-state attacks, none of it had ever occurred to date. And so suddenly... What was, you know, all the activities behind the scenes and, you know, some of the things that had been happening in the UN and had been catalyzed by Russia early, as early as 1998 suddenly came into bright focus when uh, Estonia, what, it was the DOD announced to me that they were under attack and what can we do? And <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing, but it's so not funny, but it, it's just the, the expressions. <laughs> well, except, you know, this was, this now seems strange and antiquated, but we didn't have any processes and procedures. And while everybody had prognosticated about this happening, I suspect there was no real belief that it, that it actually would. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember 
and my memory is fuzzy. So I can't tell you the moment that Helly and I came into contact, uh, but Helly did not explain that she was with the, the MOD, mm-hmm. not the MFA at this particular point in time. So there were contacts made in Washington with the Estonian embassy, but they didn't know what to do. And they were, I don't know, there was some mix up over uh, what they were suggesting. And somehow uh, Heli and I came into contact. Heli, do you remember? I think we actually met in Vienna in 2009. Mm -hmm. There was some sort of OSCE event what Estonia organized. Mm-hmm. We had put together a cyber first cyber event where we invited diplomats, technical cyber resilience community, cyber defense community, and some private sector together. And we had at that time a, a very active defense minister who was speaking there. And I think it was this event where we actually physically met first time and uh, sitting around the same table. But I am not sure that we actually spoke there, but uh, we spoke later on when I visited Washington and uh, and then we started to discuss what shall we do with this issue because it's clear that some sort of international mechanism is necessary and at that time we didn't have anything even you know like policy international policy was missing in the field. I remember in 2007 when the incident was still going on that I had talked to the embassy that they uh, and we were talking among ourselves about the fact that uh, Estonia was thinking about trying to invoke either Article 5 and then Article 4 of the Washington Treaty and NATO to support. And I guess they were eventually dissuaded about doing that because there was no context, no understanding of really that meant in the NATO, what cyber meant in the NATO context. But yes, I remember OSCE and then we went did things in OSCE in 2009. That's when we proposed the CBMs first. I think the timeline was exactly that the event uh, what we organized was in March. Then you had the bilateral with Russians in May or so where we were agreed on the hotline. Mm-hmm. And then you also discussed that uh, we should have some sort of CBMs type of process somewhere. And it was OSCE. And I think the UNGG also started in 2009. Was also happening, yes. And we had our first success. There's so much in there to unpack, ladies. And if two people were given the job to sort of sort it out, I couldn't think of two more capable people to have been given the job. I think uh, we've referenced there OSCE, the UNGG, and also the NATO discussions. Michelle, can I ask you to do the impossible task and summarise the UN group of governmental expert processes in about two minutes. Do you think you can do that? I'll speak very quickly. In 1998, the Russians proposed in the first committee of the UN a treaty or a convention that would have banned the development, deployment, and use by states of what they called information weapons, which they defined at the time to be not simply digital things, but all electronic countermeasures, influence operations, propaganda, the entire spectrum of what we were calling information operations at the time. It came literally out of the blue and uh, a surprise for a whole bunch of reasons, which are probably not germane here. I was sent to begin to engage with them in the UN. Our answer was no, uh, for a lot of reasons. It was a young technology. It was not owned exclusively by states. 
at the time, you know, we did not see a huge threat of state activities. We didn't think that this technology, which had no external observables, could be adequately captured under standard arms control types of things, nor did we think we wanted to at the time. Uh, Russia persisted. 2004, we had the first group of governmental experts where they tabled their convention. We said no, it failed. Hi, I just wanted to jump in on that point because it's a really important one. Since 1998, Russia and China and many of its friends have been advocating for a convention in cyberspace. And yes, you heard Michelle correctly, uh, the US and its allies, including Australia, have been advocating against a convention in cyberspace. We need to put this into context. The first is that Russia first introduced this idea in 1998 when the West had technological capabilities that were far superior to Russia's and the Russians wanted to constrain our behavior. The second thing is that at the time this was happening, there really was the belief that it wasn't possible to distinguish between military applications and civilian applications of the use of ICTs. And there really was this amazing sense of optimism that the internet and the free flow of information would be a democratizing force. And so the fear was that if we opted for a standard arms control style mechanism, that we would actually be inhibiting not just the military application, but also the very positive uh, civilian applications, driving economic growth, fundamental freedoms and these types of activities. And so since 1998, the West has been pushing back and saying, no, we don't need to have a convention in cyberspace. And then this was further exacerbated, and Michelle will talk about this in just a minute, about we had the agreement uh, from 2013 that existing international law applies in cyberspace. Now, obviously, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done in terms of putting detail on the bones of that. You know, it's a very high level statement. But also, we can't diminish the significance of that statement that every country in the world has agreed that existing international law applies in cyberspace. This means that we import the UN Charter into cyberspace. We import concepts like fundamental freedoms and human rights. And so the, uh, the part of the challenge of the concept of a convention in cyberspace is that you're actually, again, seeking to rewrite the rules of engagement for countries rather than to use the existing rules that we have established and that are hard fought. So I'll go back to Michelle now, but I just wanted to jump in and provide that context. But frankly, it was the attack on Estonia that changed our minds about, in fact, engaging on these things, that if this was to become an instrument of warfare for state-on-state attacks, then if arms control was certainly not the solution, we needed to look at what a solution might be. And at the next GGE in 2008-2009, the U.S. and the West decided to change the subject and pivot and focus on the types of instruments of national policy we always used when there emerged a new form of warfare. 
So we, in fact, propose that international law should apply to states' use so that civilian objects would be protected just as they were from kinetic warfare. It was clear by 2009 also that diplomacy didn't work at the speed of relevance so that we needed to have greater tools and lines of communication which allowed us to either coordinate or communicate in the event of cyber incidents. And that is why we began to propose that confidence building measures, that is collaborative measures which would allow real-time communications be a hallmark a second pillar next to international humanitarian law as an approach to these issues. And that, in fact, was agreed to in 2009. Fast forward to 2013, uh, the discussion about the applicability of international law kept proceeding at a great clip then. There was political will, uh, except on the part of the Chinese primarily, to actually make progress there. There were many uh, important statements made in that consensus document that then led into a 2015 consensus document where we noted, we understood that while international law was important to deal with cyber incidents that were above the threshold of the use of force, that is, they include lethal aspects, In fact, most cyber incidents we were all experiencing as nation states, even highly disruptive ones, did not exceed that threshold. And we needed some, how shall I say, rules of the road that states should abide by during peacetime. The 2015 GGE report concluded with some of those. And then the first attack on Crimea so poisoned the atmosphere that in really until 2020, we have been at odds. Without going into the weeds there, we had two different processes starting in 2019, a GGE and an open-ended working group sponsored by the Russians. We took over, the U.S. took over sponsorship of the original GGE resolution. And through total timing and serendipity, and a few months of goodwill in the summer or in the spring of 2021, we managed to affirm all of our objectives with regard to international law norms, CBMs, capacity building, and tie it up with a very, I think, thoughtful uh, consensus report on the GGE in 2021. I'm not going to get into what we're doing now. I think you will probably want to bring that up later. But that's the long and the short of the GGE. And what I would say about that, if you'll bear with me one more moment, we were able to succeed in the consensus reports to date through 2021 because Russia, China, and others were so delighted that we were finally engaging that we were able to walk a parallel path through those some of those years intermittently such that there was political will to achieve agreement however i want to underscore that our goals 
our objectives are quite different. And I believe that their goals are absolutely incompatible with ours, which are principled democracy, equal justice, and the rule of law. Let's now turn to look at current events. And perhaps, Heli, we'll start with you, if you're able to share with us how the the current conflict in Ukraine is being perceived in Europe. I mean, to have Russia invade Ukraine in this manner, uh, you know, I can't condemn it in strong enough words. I'd welcome if you can share a little about how the mood and, and sense is in Europe. Yeah, I can. Uh, interestingly, I'm right now in Spain, in Barcelona, where we had a conference with all the most distinguished European foreign, foreign policy experts from the academic side, discussing exactly the same issues, discussing the possibilities of changing international order. And interestingly, most of the experts do not see the quick de-escalation in this situation right now which is sad and not very encouraging. And talking about the real battlefield activities uh, on the ground, then we certainly are afraid of the new types of weapons to be brought into the mix. And basically, in terms of military strategy, we see Russian miscalculations and hence their escalation now to start bombing the cities and uh, using unproportionate use of force against the civilian civilian population and civilian infrastructure. So uh, half of the activities could be called for crimes. But the problem is that since one of the Security Council permanent members is uh, doing those war crimes, it's difficult to do anything about it as international community, which is very heartbreaking. What we can do is providing weapons for Ukrainians under the UN Charter. It's allowed. Does not, you are a lawyer, Johanna, you should know. <laughs> Does not uh, cause casus belli if we provide self-defense tools for attacked country. You know, under the self-defense clause, we can do this as friendly nations. But certainly there are great risks uh, related to any of the NATO countries getting into the conflict. That might mean uh, escalation. Even to, you know, we have seen the nuclear threats that Putin did. And basically, I think most of the experts are at loss right now. Uh, as for what's the good strategy for the West, what kind of outcome the sanctions will have, whether we can cut the gas or not, <laughs> it's still, I understand, no for most of the European nations that are dependent on the Russian gas. And then, interestingly, I think, uh, especially in Germany, you have um, suddenly um, a very big pause of rethinking the whole post-Cold War foreign policy, certainly. So this is, in in some ways, it's very sad. It took the whole tragedy and invasion for some European countries to basically start thinking seriously about um, actual threats in the world. But that's happening. And uh, uh, coming to more positive side, what is happening is that the European Union, who was not to have any wars anymore amongst the Europeans, suddenly has changed in one week more than in the last 70 years. So, or it's less than 70 years. But uh, So this is a good sign of Western uh, resolve. There is a huge unity right now, transatlantic unity, uh, the European unity, all sorts of very positive activities happening, uh, people accepting everywhere in Europe, refugees in their homes. And this kind of solidarity is unprecedented. I have never seen this kind of uh, solidarity in 
in Europe before against other nations, like right now against Ukraine or towards Ukrainians. Also, there is some um, interesting, uh, not so good and predictable uh, things happening. Russia has, I think now, regrouped and it has started to activate those uh, cells in Western Europe to protest against Ukrainian refugee in, inflow, inflow in Europe. There was a protest, I think, in Berlin today by a handful of Russians. Uh, possibly they were um, paid by the Russian embassy to protest against uh, influx of Ukrainian refugees. Can you imagine that? So, uh, well, I don't think it was just happening itself. So that's my uh, mm. personal opinion. And since I'm now academic, I can be speaking freely. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to remind to myself, you know, I shouldn't censor yes. myself anymore. I can say. So these things are now happening. We were, and what we haven't seen certainly is the major, you know, cyber capabilities used on the ground uh, in Ukraine, which doesn't mean that we will not see them in the future, maybe no, against maybe some other targets. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting that, you know, so many people expected the Russian invasion to commence with big flashbang cyber attacks against critical infrastructure. And mm -hmm. we didn't see that. But I think I'm seeing quite a lot of commentary with people saying, oh, I told you so, we've overestimated the risk in cyberspace. And I think that is fundamentally wrong. I think no. just because they haven't been used now doesn't mean they won't. And I think there is a calculation there about escalation. You know, I think if we had a, a not Pecha or a, uh, you know, and not Pecha, which started by the Russians attacking critical infrastructure in Ukraine that spread around the world, caused billions of dollars of damage. If something like that was to happen now, the risk of escalation and drawing of other countries into the conflict would be enormous. And maybe it is giving the Russians too much credit to think that that is part of their calculus. Maybe it was just easier to go in with missiles rather than malicious code. I also think so. Yeah. But I think we can't discount that if the conflict continues um, and desperation, that they won't resort to that. And also that, you know, a different theatre of conflict would have a very different impact. So, Michelle, to the extent that you're you're able, I'd, I'd love for you to, to share the mood from your perspective and also to speak a little about what's at stake in the conflict in Ukraine. This is a real wake-up call for all of us about the behaviour of countries and, you know, people often mock this idea that we have to defend the rules-based order, for example, and it really is now at stake. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, I can certainly say some observations that I have personally made or I'm making in real time, I think. And I would like to say with regard to the challenge to the rule-based order, what we need, that we certainly as nations, we as diplomats need to understand it's no longer business as usual. And I want to say what I think that means. So ironically, as Heli pointed out, what Putin sought to drive apart, asunder, he actually created, which is an extraordinary resolidification of, of the alliance and partners and an understanding of why these edifices that we've had since the Second World War exist, mm. that they exist for a purpose, uh, that when we stand together, as we've tried to do in cyberspace most recently, 
that we create great power between us all. And I think with it, his behavior has undermined all of those very active and still nascent nationalist movements all over Europe that were gaining traction. In terms of what's at stake, I I want to bring up an issue that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I had have tried to articulate for the last year or so, and I didn't I don't think I've put it together really until now. And that is the fact that in light of what Russia is doing to, as Heli said, basically degrade the rules-based order, democracy, and justice, and they've basically totally disregarded the UN Charter and international humanitarian law, you know, I think that we need to look at all of these things that they have been doing in international and multilateral bodies for years, whose purpose is the same as what they're doing in Ukraine, to destroy what we have built up over all these years. And what we have, we have been so careful as Westerners to be even-handed and to try to negotiate and meet them halfway. And what I'm talking about is this three-dimensional chess game that they've been playing uh, in the UN in the first committee with the open-ended working group and the third committee with this convention on cybercrime, you know, putting in in the ITU, uh, putting up a candidate to head the ITU to want to host the IGF, the Internet Governance Forum, and all of these things. We have to understand that those are simply the diplomatic extensions of these unacceptable to us Russian objectives. We have to understand that there's nothing innocent about these proposals and this notion of getting along to go along and trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, we have to understand that what we have is a sow's ear. There's an assumption by many, uh, middle states at least, and I think many in the West until this event in Ukraine, that what Russia was trying to do was probably slightly different than what our objectives were. But somehow that we could come to uh, a meeting of the minds on this. And my view is that this is no longer business as usual for each of these international organizations and multilateral places where we are working. uh, We have to understand that they are attempting to impose a totalitarian view of life and the world and governance on us and that we can't simply split the difference. We can't simply say we're going to work with them and I'm sure we can pivot and turn this to something. I mean, certainly I did that in the GGE for years, uh, but I felt that, you know, for the most part, we, we were successful. I don't think there's quite 
enough recognition that this is what is going on, that this has been a long, cohesive strategy on their part, and that we are simply, you know, as diplomats and as bureaucrats are siloed in our little, well, that's cybercrime, we don't deal with that, or that's political military issues, we don't deal with that, or that's governance issues, and I can, and we don't deal with that. But, you know, that we have to look at this strategically and holistically, and that our objective should be to thwart everything that Russia is trying to do here, that they, sh- well, already we've seen movements to to take them out of leadership posts in multilateral organizations like in WITSA. But it's even more important that these diplomatic processes that they've succeeded in initiating in the UN, that they are removed if they continue, if the Russians have to be removed from the ability to fully affect these things. People have got to know that what's at the end of their wish list is a world that we don't want to live in. I've spent my whole career trying to prevent war with Russia. I thought it was nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. And here I am after 39 years, absolutely devastated and feeling tragic because, you know, my family lands were in Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine were, you know, for 400 years, seamless. But they are a separate sovereign country and that they have the right to live as they want. I don't know where this will end up. That's not my job, but this is intolerable, truly. The point that I wanted to make about Ukraine is that everything that Putin has done so far has resulted in an outcome that he never wanted, that he strove to prevent, uh, and that is the unification of uh, the Western alliance stronger than it's ever been before. I think that he created basically a very strong, indivisible machine standing against him. And it brought back to everybody the reason why we have this alliance, why this 70-year-old machinery, which was appearing to be quite rusty, was actually brought into being and needed to be reinvigorated, and it has done so in a way that he couldn't have imagined. He also has undermined all the Putin wannabes all over the world, including in Europe, who have been pursuing nationalist uh, movements that seek to emulate what he has done. I agree very much with that, Michelle. I think Putin's actions have highlighted to many of us the value of these alliances and partnerships and certainly in a way that many people of my generation have not felt quite so viscerally before, both in terms of what it is that we stand for as we stand together, but also in terms of what it is that we stand against. Heli, Michelle, I, I'd like to pivot and change the focus slightly now and ask you both, what gives you hope in this current scenario? You've both worked in this field for a long time and Michelle, you've just spoken very eloquently about having a career trying to avoid war and now being in this unimaginable situation. 
Is there anything from which you take heart or hope from at the moment? I think this is something we all need uh, a a little of this in our lives and and particularly here thinking and directing this hope towards the people of Ukraine. I think certainly this has solidified the Western uh, unity, which is the good thing. And what I already have seen in the last two weeks amongst the younger generation of the Europeans is unprecedented Uh, solidarity with uh, Ukraine and understanding uh, that uh, history is not over and everybody has to do their uh, bit and everybody has a role. So I think what we will have as an aftermark of this whole catastrophe is a much greener Europe that is not using any uh, Russian oil anymore. Uh, I think now the date is 27, which is even very ambitious, as somebody explained to me today, who is dealing with economic issues. And in 2027, we cut off totally from mm. Russia. But somebody in Twitter today was tweeting that since 24th of February, when invasion started, which was, by the way, Estonian Independence Day, this was ruined for us. And during those two weeks or 17 days, Russia has earned 9 billion euros because of oil. Mm. So... This is a hard reality that we have in Europe. And of course, the Baltic states and Poland can just say, yes, we told you so now, but uh, it's too late. Now. We are not in the mood of, of saying we told you so, but it's now very clear for all of our European partners that everything we said was unfortunately true, although we didn't want to believe it ourselves that we uh, had guessed over those past 20 years. Uh, on the Western side, it looks that now we are finally not having any wishful thinking or naive hope that Russia will be somehow brought back to this international system as, as we hoped after the Cold War. But what's next is a very uh, good question. Uh, what can we do? So maybe the Chinese have to, at some point, when Russian uh, taking like two or three months from now, Russian economy has collapsed. Russians don't have anything to eat anymore. They don't have lots of reserves. They cannot cope. Historically, they have history of not considering what their civilian population needs. But at some point, they need to have someone helping them. And and this will be most probably China. So uh, the prospect of becoming China's colony, I think, uh, is also not very attractive for Putin. So this is one of the clear prospects that they will have uh, since the economic default. But what we have to fear, of course, is this authoritarianism getting uh, much stronger also in Russia, because Russia was so far relatively free still. People could follow their social media accounts. They could basically avoid the uh, state-centered TV and they could uh, you know, live in their own corner, a pretty free life, and they could travel to Europe and so on. This might all change because we already saw this legislation which bans Russians to say the words war and invasion. And many Russians are now uh, fleeing Russia. I saw the plane is full of the Russians with real Russian accent, not the Estonian Russian accent when I came here. So it's uh, something which also is not so good, maybe. So the when all the brightest will leave Russia again, as it happened in 1917, as it happened after the Cold War, as it happened you know, after the Second World War. So this is a repeating pattern and everyone who can will flee. And then, then you will have only the passive masses plus the Putin and his friends there uh, in power. 
what we should certainly uh, very clearly also understand is that uh, Russian people support Putin in this war because of the brainwash that there was in the uh, last 20 years, the propaganda that has been aired in the TV and everywhere. So clearly there is uh, also popular support towards the war still amongst the Russian population. And I think the well, I grew up in Soviet Union. I remember the feeling like we didn't believe anything which was on the state TV anyway, because we were told it's crap. But I'm not sure that the young generation of Russians are told like this, like the Soviet Union times people did, because they had uh, gone through the Stalin uh, repressions and so on. So, and, and this is a bit of scary part, so that you have also the uh, new generation there, which is not really having any democratic instincts and is more closer to maybe Chinese model of the governance than the European model of the governance. And I was supposed to be optimist. So I think the optimistic scenario will be that we will have a new peaceful coexistence. The Western part of the world with their own Western internet, with their own Western values, and with their McDonald's and Coca-Cola's and Western companies. And then you have this large authoritarian part of the world that starts at Narva River which is a river between Estonia and Russia. But as far as this is peaceful, this, I think, is acceptable, right? And, and Russia is somehow, by some means, coming back to the international system in a different way, not maybe under this leadership, but hopefully there will be some sort of regime change uh, after losing economic um, prospects. The country will change from, it, from within, but how, we don't know, of course. It's difficult to be optimist, very frankly, right now. Michelle, you're known for your eternal optimism, so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Russian. There is no optimism. Um, So, you know, I I agree with everything that Heli said, except that I think that peaceful coexistence will be a long time coming, and it will certainly depend on whether Putin has ambitions beyond Ukraine Mm. What kind of regime is in Ukraine? I think people always thought of me as being a little bit hard-nosed and very Cold War when it came to the Russians. I mean, I I did the agreements that I thought were in our interests, and, and I fought with them otherwise. But I think my my feelings have been borne out, that they are who they are, that what dominates is history, culture, and geopolitics in their case, and that has certainly not changed one iota. I mean, you can go back 400 years, you can go back 200 years, and you have dictators and suppression and dominance and taking territory and land, you know, and that continues to this day. And you can try to say that the situation has created the dictator, you can say that the dictator has created the situation. Uh, but it seems to repeat itself in Russian history. And my heart bleeds for the Ukrainian people. And I hope we're put in a position where we can do something. Michelle and Heli, we have gone well over time. So I'd like to bring this to a close and perhaps 
Given the experience that both of you have in this field and given the situation that we now find ourselves in with many youngsters stepping up to the plate in a conflicting environment that they have never dealt with before, perhaps you can share some advice in terms of what's something that you know now that you wish you had have known at the start of your career that might be useful for those who are working in diplomacy or international security at the moment? It's not something that I wish I knew. It's, I think that you can only gain respect if you have the courage of your convictions. You know, the the meme of speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. although you may have to be diplomatic in that truth, I think that that always stands one in good stead. Being a yes person or just going along to get along is never worth it. It's not worth it for your own self-respect or anything else. So I'd say no matter where you are in your career, you know, have the courage of your convictions, do your homework and research and be able to support what it is that you believe in. So Heli, what words of wisdom do you have to share? My life has uh, taught me that one should not be afraid to be courageous. Because uh, when I look back at my career, I have done some very uh, impossible things in my career because of courage, mostly. Ambition, courage, and also, of course, knowledge and the ability to do this, but mostly courage, which is, I think, usually the quality which is lacking in younger people. When I was pushed to do cyber after 2007 attacks in kind of crisis mode of a country and Minister of Defense uh, sitting next to you, breathing down your neck and saying, when the strategy is coming, when are you going to give me the first draft? I want to see this, oversee this project personally. He he used to be the rector of the university, so, and he was nuclear physicist by his training. So you can imagine my fear. I'm psychologist, so I'm like a mm-hmm. poet compared to him. Mm-hmm. And and so I was pushed to this. I was asked to be in the same room with all these uh, geeky IT people, and uh, I had to make sense out of what they have been telling me. So it was uh, quite difficult. But I think it's kind of anecdotal story. But every stage in my career has brought like impossible situations. But then I think mostly it was courage how I tackled it. I didn't know how to do this in the beginning, and it was frightening, of course, when you have this some new stage where you have to do. And but then you figure this out, and and you have the courage to do it. So if you if you are convinced that you are doing the right thing. Have, have also the courage to do it. So. Yeah, I think that statement of I didn't know how to do it certainly rings true for me. I don't know about you, Michelle, but I didn't know how to do most of the things that I've done in my career. Michelle and Heli, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. But also thank you for everything that you have done. Michelle, uh, you have taught several generations of people this field and your patience in engaging with me, but in um, probably hundreds of my counterparts over the years. But you left, you see, this is not (laughs) acceptable. You have to, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, mentor people and then have them leave. That's not, that's not part of the game plan. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'm, I'm still here, even if I'm no longer uh, in exactly the same game. Um, and Heli, likewise with, with so many of the European counterparts and also in the work that you're doing now. 
Michelle, Helly, thank you so much for that advice. I think it's really timely to hear that, that to have courage in our convictions and to speak truth to power. And in doing so, it is possible to do things that may seem impossible. As we conclude this podcast, I, I really also wanted to acknowledge the very brave Russians that are speaking truth to power and who at great personal cost are opposing the actions of President Putin. I speak for the three of us when I say that we stand in solidarity and support for the people of Ukraine, their sovereignty and their freedoms. When I was in New York in May 2021, I met with Putin's special advisor for ICTs, Andrei Krutsky. We met, uh, among many meetings, in an Irish bar under a sign that said, be good or be gone. And Andre and I agreed at that meeting that this would be a good motto for the negotiations that we went on to successfully conclude the negotiations we've spoken about here. But I think this motto is equally applicable to Russians in Ukraine now. Be good or be gone. Thank you, Heli and Michelle, so much for being with us on the podcast today. Yes. Thank you, Joanna. For those of you who have listened to this episode and feel the need to do something, we've attached in the pod notes a link to the International Committee of the Red Cross's donation page. The ICRC, together with the Red Cross and Red Crescent movements, remain active in Ukraine. They are saving and protecting the lives of the victims of armed conflict and violence. They are neutral and impartial humanitarian action supports the most vulnerable people. The humanitarian needs are enormous, but together we can address them and your donations will make a huge difference to families in need right now and we encourage you to donate what you can. For those of you who are looking for recommended readings on some of the issues that we've spoken about in the podcast, Heli, Michelle and I all recommend Active Measures – the Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare by Thomas Ridd. This tells the story of disinformation and political warfare from before the Second World War right up to the 2016 US presidential elections. And it's also just a riveting read. I also recommend Red Web by Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borigan, which has the tagline, The Kremlin's War on the Internet. We hope that you've enjoyed this special episode. We'll be back soon with an episode with Australia's e-safety commissioner, Julie Iman-Grant. And as always, please do let us know what you want to hear from future pods. Get in touch and get involved. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research support. You can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Tech Policy Design or Google us and follow the links. Thank you for listening and please do rate us or leave us a review. 